0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Reader Payne about his book, War and Diplomacy in the Napoleonic Era, Sir Charles Stewart, Castlereagh, and the Balance of Power in Europe. Reader, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thanks for being on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
1: Yes. Um... I'm currently employed as a heritage consultant and I'm um, also got a passion for sort of late eighteenth, early nineteenth century history. I did my PhD, oh gosh, twelve years ago, um, looking at Pitt the Younger and Lord North. Of course, a man uh, Lord North a particular figure in in the United States history. Um and for some for some time I've been wanting to sort of, you know, write write a project on the Napoleonic War. So that's kind of you know, I've kind of been holding down a job as as I say my daytime job, which is um to advise various clients on, on historic buildings and landscapes and my my other job which is basically writing Napoleonic history.
0: <laughs> what led you to focus on uh Sir Charles Stewart as uh your first subject in Napoleonic history?
1: Um well I've I've long been interested in Lord Castlereagh's uh tenure at the Foreign Office because you know he's obviously seen as a as a very European uh kind of statesman, sometimes quite out of out of sort of the ordinary of, of his time. And and I always was intrigued by his brother, who has some really key positions in the period. And it always tends to be written off as pure nepotism. You know, he's he's famous for sort of fighting people and and famous for sort of picking fights with all sorts of individuals. And I thought, well, there must be more to the man than than that. I've you know, I spent a lot of my academic career looking at, at the workings of patronage in the Hanoverian period, where you know basically. To us, it may seem like nepotism, but, you know, obviously it's the way the system, the system worked in the 18th and 19th centuries. And I've often been quite sort of passionate to sort of see, you know, to go against these ideas of, of people being given posts simply because of who they are. So obviously the, the narrative had always been that that Stuart got these plum positions in the military and, and the civilian spheres simply because he was Lord Castlereagh's brother. Obviously that played an important part. But I, I really wanted to see what made Stuart the man, what you know, was he up to his job? Was he basically you know, what was he deserving of Castlereagh's patronage? So again, it was it was it was really a kind of trying to bring them trying to bring Stuart to life as an individual and to understand why he was such such a key figure in not only Britain's military history in the peninsula, but basically was at the heart of Britain's diplomacy for a decade.
0: I have to say, I mean, you succeeded for me at least in terms of doing that because as I was reading, I'm thinking that I, I, I'm surprised that we don't have more written about him given the life you describe. I mean, it was one that was at the heart of, of, of power uh, for a very critical period in European history. But it was also fascinating to lead this dramatic life, how he – Uh, you know, he slept around, he, it it was, it was a very dashing life in in a lot of ways is the kind of thing I think, especially when I compare it to his brother who was an incredibly important figure, but didn't have quite that same amount of brio in his, in his life that, that, that Charles had.
1: I think, I think, I think that's very true. And I, and I think that, um, the the one, one thing that without sort of prejudging where we're going in, in the book, um, I think the problem has been that that when he when he died, there were so few people around that actually remembered his glorious career. You know we're talking we you know well into the Victorian period when he actually died, and the sort of first biography didn't come out until well, the first and only biography didn't come out until the eighteen sixties, so there were literally a handful of people who may have remembered his career but <clears throat> I think as the Victorian period went on as, as the twentieth century went on. That it was Carcere who was always remembered, and you find that Stuart literally becomes no more than a footnote. It's kind of just, oh yeah, that's Karsare's brother. He he was ambassador to Austria, minister to Prussia, full stop. So, I th- I think in many ways that that he you know perhaps not lives too long, but but because he's out of public life for over thirty years when he returns back from Vienna in eighteen twenty three, that, that he's just forgotten about that he's basically much remembered in this country now as a sort of reactionary Tory who seems to oppose all kinds of reforms
0: well we'll definitely get to that uh, last part of his life uh, a little bit later on but I was wondering if you could start us off by talking a bit more about his early years who was Charles Stewart where uh, was his uh, family from and where does he fit within the uh, Stewart uh, family uh, tree shall we say
1: yeah Um, so the Stuart family, by the 18th century, had had really risen themselves up into the sort of ranks of the Ulster gentry, and then by the sort of the later 18th century, had had managed to get themselves into the ranks of the Irish aristocracy. When when Stuart's father was made uh, first Baron Londonderry, he then became first Viscount Castlereagh, and then first Earl of Londonderry in, in sort of like in the 1790s. Stuart Stuart is is the basically the eldest son of of the first lord londonderry's second marriage so he's he's castlereagh's um half brother but there's sort of there's um you know there's there's castlereagh's born in 1769 and stuart's born in 1778 there's quite an age difference between the two and and what's interesting about this period of, of the stuart family history is that both castlereagh and his brother were educated in in anglican establishments so Obviously, as, as I'm sure you're aware, you know, all, the sort of many of the families in Ulster were sort of were, were Scottish ancestry. They were Presbyterians. But you ha- but you find that the, the, the Stuart family at this time is, is taking pains to really sort of manoeuvre themselves to to take a position in the Irish and British political establishments where where you would be expected to be Anglican, to be a member of, of that establishment. So Stuart, for example, is sent off to to Eton College you know, which is we don't get much more Anglican than that, Ang- Anglican English School, to sort of, sort of cement their position, really, as, as members of this sort of new, of this, you know, members of the, of the elite. And then we find that, that Stuart then passionately wants a, wants a military career and basically heads off, you know, heads off at 16 off to Central Europe, sorry, at big Point, off to mainland Europe to, to, to fight the French, something which, for which he will, you know, will dominate the, sort of, the first few decades of his life. And it's 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 quite an amazing child. You know, literally he goes straight out of school, straight into the military and and he suffers two severe injuries very quickly. Um, And then he, you know, he he then comes back to to Britain. He settles down. He marries, becomes an aide de com to King George the third. And he's very much, you know, before the Peninsula War. And apologies for the police, Siren. Um, He's uh, he's he's very much before the plinths of the war, a fairly successful younger son of, of the first Earl of Londonderry. So he's basically, you know, he ends up being in the war office. He's an MP. He's married. He's got a son. And what's quite interesting, because Lord and Lady Castlereagh don't have children, he's very much seen, obviously, as the future of the Londonderry title. So he basically, I think, by the, before he goes off to the plinths of the war in, in 1808, he's already recognised as the heir to Londonderry title and estates. So that's kind of his background pre- Sort of pre as i would say takes a grand takes on a grand stage on a more international sort of um sort of background
0: i i would like to unpack that early uh, military career just a little bit more because i i was it was interesting because what you desc- it, it, it's and one level seems to be a bit of a conundrum is that that you have uh, Castlereagh who's you know very oriented towards a political career he's in the irish parliament he plays a central role in in getting the act of union passed. And yet his younger brother gravitates instead towards the military. And obviously, this is a a very critical time to be in the military. You have the Revolutionary Wars on the continent. You uh, have the rise of Napoleon Bonaparte at the end of the century and the the wars there. What drew uh, Charles to a uh, a military career instead of a political career? And how does that end up shaping his uh, subsequent public life uh, in in the uh, 18-teens and into the 1820s?
1: Well, I th- I think I suspect it's more to do with Charles Stewart's temperament. I don't think he's the cool, rational politician, um, whereas Castlereagh, you know, is is very much a sort of you know very cool, very rational, very very skillful politician. I don't. I think Stuart is a man who who basically does not hide his emotions very well, and I think his temperament is really one. He's he's always wants to dash off and and fight people, so I think it fits his <laughs> temperament very well. But but you you'd be right. What's what's very interesting as well is that Stuart obviously starts off as as, a, as in his military career. He's potentially talked to his father about going off to Cambridge University if peace should break out between France and Britain in the 1790s. Obviously, there are peace fears between the two countries um in the 1790s obviously that that never happens and i think stuart regrets not going to university actually later on in life um so i think he would have liked to have followed his elder brother castlereagh in, in going to cambridge um, but but, you, but you're right he makes a transition as well to almost a political figure as well so by the, so it's interesting that although he's very active in the french revolutionary wars when 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 sort of the peace of amiens happens and and obviously the napoleonic wars break out fairly soon after that stewart actually doesn't get involved in this He he's his career takes a very different turn so he becomes so he's so he's an mp He then he's an mp in, in westminster following you know following the act of union he he say he gets his court position as adc to george george the he marries he settles down and he even he even writes a book on military reform in 1805 so I i i wonder myself whether whether he sees himself perhaps under perhaps under his family influence as developing a more sort of civilian like character by the sort of in the, in the sort of 1800s. And, and I, and I wonder if the, if the peninsula war had not actually broken out in the way it did, whether he would have continued in that civilian career. And as as I say, forged, forged a successful career, you know, as, as a, as a fairly, you know, fairly successful youngest son of, of an Irish earl. Who is seen as saying is, is the heir to the titles and the estate? So it's interesting that he spends his early formative years really involved in some quite vicious actions against the French. He's you know he's he's injured twice. For example, you know I think he's I think he's eighteen when it, basically a musket ball goes through his telescope and he, and basically almost blinds him in one eye. And for the rest of his life, he's actually you know he has that disfigurement. And actually people comment on on the one eye? I think one French. A uh, French uh, guest calls him, you know, that that sort of moist, sentimental look in his eye, you know, because it gives him the sort of appearance of of a, of a hero in later life. So I do wonder if the if he hadn't been sent out to the Flintstone in eighteen oh eight, whether actually he would have continued that very successful Anglo-Irish political career. But obviously, <laughs> events intervened to change him on a on a different course of life.
0: I was wondering if we could spend uh, if we could turn to the that Peninsular war experience which which you know is such a, a, a dis, uh, an important part of his life and it, it seems it, it from I, I gathered from reading your book it in many ways it seemed to be the highlight of his life in so many ways uh, if you could perhaps explain what was going on with the Peninsular war in 1808 1809 uh, and then how uh, the role that, that Charles Stuart begins to play at that point and and, and how he and what he, and how he responds basically to the events that are uh, surrounding him.
1: Yes, of course. Um, I suppose, yes, you know, I suppose people always think of, of Britain's naval, um, traditions, you during, during the Napoleonic wars, because obviously, you know, the era of Nelson and, and, you know, and and the great era of, of defeat, of, of successfully defeating the French at sea. It's so different on land because, you know, Britain may be, you know, almost the, you know, almost, you know, in the, the master of the seas around the world, which obviously can make sure that Britain can maintain its trade and its empire. But on land, it's quite, quite meagre military resources, so they tend to be used sparingly and in some pretty disastrous campaigns. So, on the eve of the Peninsular War, you, you've got you know a, a, a history almost of Britain doing brilliantly at sea, but pretty appallingly on the land. Um, and, I, and I suppose that that you know that that may resonate with sort of American viewers about sort of Britain's efforts during the American Revolutionary Wars. Um, but by 1808, what well, Napoleon I think makes the first of his catastrophic mistakes. He is unhappy with with the P- Iberian Peninsula, and is particularly unhappy with his allies, the Bourbon uh, uh, Bourbons of Spain. So he, he catches this plan hatched that basically th- that Spain and France will basically go and invade Portugal because Portugal is seen as britain's oldest ally it's 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 had a treaty with england since the since the 14th century and the the prince regent of portugal is is very keen not to alienate britain but also tries to play off the french as well that doesn't succeed and the french basically decide to invade portugal now that that is the start of 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 a catastrophic french intervention in the peninsula because the, the Portuguese royal family are able to escape with, with British naval help. And off they go to Portugal, where they then run a court in exile. Um, and, then, and then basically, because the is so unimpressed with how Spain has, has uh, performed as an ally, he then decides to basically depose the Bourbons completely. So basically both Carlos IV and Fernando VII are, are brought into French territory and basically told that their reign is over. And Joseph Bonaparte will be the new king of Spain, so that doesn't go down too well in uh, in, in in Spain itself. And obviously, what what we <clears throat> the most famous sort of you know outbreak of, of violence is the Dastameo in in Madrid, which obviously is is portrayed by Gore in that, that famous execution scene. And we you know we have basically the civilian population of Madrid you know fighting French troops in the capital, and then the French basically uh, having savage reprisals in, in response. So both sort of outbreaks of outbreaks of rebellion against French rule in both Spain and Portugal lead to a new sort of optimism in, in London that basically they can intervene somehow militarily against France on, on, on main in, on mainland Europe. And so both Spanish, uh, and Portuguese delegations actually, you know, actually come and ask for help. Spanish only want, only want arms and supplies at this stage. But the Portuguese are, are are pretty keen for some sort of intervention. So, what we get is to start of basically a British military intervention um, in 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 the Iberian Peninsula at the start of 1808. Now, Stuart, he he's basically busy at his desk in the War Office, where he's been appointed since 1807, and then he gets the call up as well because basically, obviously, they're, they're you know he's he's got a, I imagine he's he's a very well connected person, and he gets a call up to basically go and lead um hussar brigades in the new campaign to come. So what's what's interesting that as soon as he's appointed, he gets lots of letters from various military individuals with their ideas for, for the campaign. And Stuart himself is not afraid of of lobbying his brother, who this time is the war secretary, on how Britain can basically, you know, intervene in the affairs of Portugal and Spain. So he sent out with the Hussar Brigades uh, under the command of Sir John Moore, who and, and they arrived you know, a, a few you know, so a few days after sort of a great victory. So it's it's an interesting time in the plinsee. He's literally there at the start of British intervention, an intervention which will, as as we know, will, will go on for some considerable time, with a drain of resources. <laughs>
0: Did he do well as a soldier? Did he uh, distinguish himself? And what his relations like both uh, with Moore and with uh, Arthur Wellesley? Because you have this interesting uh, undercurrent in your book about how he has this relationship with Wellington that uh, continues uh, not uh, past his military career into his years in the diplomatic service.
1: Yes, it's um it's an interesting relationship he has with both John Moore and as and you say with Wellington. With with John Moore, I think the problem from the outset is that John Moore is, is not really trusted by the government that much and there's not that warmth between Castlery and John Moore that there is between Castlery, for example, and, and then Arthur Wellesley. Um and John Moore is is because he's not trusted, you know, that that Stuart I think does not f- have too many compunctions about basically writing home to incarcerated to say exactly what he thinks about him. And, and as you, 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 you observe in the book, there's some quite frank letters sent home from a subordinate officer about his commanding officer to the war secretary, um, basically saying exactly what he thinks of John Moore and, you know, and and of his fitness to command. So it, there's a lot of tension there. And I think Moore is well aware of what Stewart is up to. And I'm sure Sir so John Moore must have been quite wary of Stuart's obviously very, very sort of grand connections back home to the political establishment in London, which must have made him always keep one eye over his shoulder. I <laughs> expect uh, <laughs> Cause you can imagine, you are know, one of your subordinate officers is basically the brother of the man who's basically in charge of the war office. That's going to make you feel a bit nervous. Um, but Stuart, Stuart does very well in the, in the first campaign. So obviously this, this ends with, with John Moore's death at La Coruna in 1800 in January, 1809. But Stuart comes home very much with with fresh laurels. He's involved in some quite severe cavalry clashes, and, he, and he's seen as having done, you know, having done his duty very well. So he's a, he's a natural, really, to be sent out again when when Wellesley is, is sent out for the for the sort of his the definitive Peninsula campaign from eighteen oh nine onwards. And and it's quite interesting that 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 there's quite a, a warmth between Arthur Wellesley and Charles Stuart, which. You know, which, as you say, doesn't necessarily um, maintain for the rest of their life. And and what is interesting is is that is that after Wellesley's career was nearly destroyed by the sort of Convention of Sintra, when you know when the French were allowed to evacuate Portugal uh, on Royal Naval ships, what what is what is interesting that that reading the letters is is that Charles Stewart actually sends home some early reports about that convention to his brother. Basically saying it's not it's not Wellesley's fault; it's basically everyone else's fault. And I think that's something that hadn't really come out before. That that, that Stuart had really done his best to try and shield Wellesley as much as possible. And and so, in eighteen oh nine, I do feel that there's a real warmth between Wellesley and you know, as Wellington as he soon became, and and Stuart that that possibly does not you know is slightly soured a bit by their four years in the Peninsula together because Stuart is quite desperate, I think, to become an independent cavalry commander rather than rather than wellington's adjutant general which which he serves in from 1809 to 12 was basically sort of sorting out paperwork and administrative affairs and and things like sort of spying operations so quite quite vital operations but it seems to me from the from his letters home that Stuart begins to to wary a bit of, of wellington's style of command he feels that he's not taken into wellington's confidences he's not you know, part of the, part of an inner circle. He may be, you know, a general officer, but he's not, you know, part of sort of, you know, the decision-making, or, or, you know, of, of you know, or, around the inner sanctum. So I think by, by the end of his period in the peninsula, I think he's come to be not personally wary of Wellington, but a bit wary of Wellington's, you know, of how he thinks he's been sidelined in in his military career, because at one stage, he's even offered the command of the entire Portuguese cavalry. And he ends up turning that down, I suspect, probably because Wellington and his brother told him to, rather than you know rather than any inclination of his own, because basically he really he always wants to go off and fight people in the peninsula, and that doesn 't tally with with his job, which is a really important administrative job back at headquarters and I think that's 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 almost a metaphor for his entire life he wants he's got responsibilities, but he always wants to go off on a horse and fight people.
0: And that's what I find so fascinating about his uh, transition into the diplomatic service, because at this point, you've described in the book a person who is very much of, you know, not, not, you know, maybe to this, this, you know, uh, glamorous up a bit uh, more than, than might be the case, but he's a warrior. He's a person who, who is, who really thrills in the participation in warfare. He wants to be fighting, as you've just, des- as you've described. And, and yet he then, Goes and serves as an ambassador. Why does he shift into the diplomatic service? What is—is is it his brother's influence? Is it because uh, his relations with Wellington have deteriorated to the point where he is is ready to be done with the peninsula? What, what's what's driving this this rather uh, on the surface at least this very uh, unlikely uh, shift?
1: <laughs> yes, it's it's a radical change, isn't it? Um.
0: <laughs> Um, Although not so radical as you, you point out later on, because I mean he's still very much involved in the Napoleonic Wars, <laughs> just in a different, just you know, in a very different way.
1: In a different way. Um. So, so he comes back from the Peninsula in eighteen twelve. His his first wife, Catherine Stewart, dies after a minor operation, and I think after that, I think he's almost incapable of carrying on. I, th- I think, I think you know, he possibly hasn't thought too much about his family when he's off galloping and and fighting people. But I think her death brings home the fact that he has actually basically neglected her. He's, he's, he's seen, you know, since he's been off in, in Portugal and Spain from 1808, he's barely been home. He's, he's, he comes home once on sick leave. But apart from that, he's basically always away. And I think he feels, you know, a sort of sense of, of, of loss and guilt over what he's done to some extent. And he goes very quiet. He comes back to, to Britain in 1812, but he doesn't go out to Prussia until the spring of 1813. So there's there's a gap there where there's not much going on. There are very few letters. There's the odd letter between him and Wellington where Wellington says, "Don't even think of coming back out until you're fully recovered." So, you know, you do wonder what 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 state his health was in, you know, in 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 that year when he was convalescing at home. I think, and also I, th- I think you're right. I think you've touched a point there about Wellington that I I, I think he probably realised that Wellington was not going to give him an independent cavalry command. I think deep down Wellington. Didn't overly trust him. I think in, to 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 be a calm senior leader because you know it's it's that idea that again he always wants to go off and fight people, which, which in a cavalry commander can be quite a dangerous thing. If you <laughs> basically always want to go and charge people, you you might end up sort of being caught in a French rearguard or something. So it's it's quite a dangerous thing to, to be too hot-headed as, as a cavalry commander because cavalry charges can be quite difficult to control at the best of times. So. I, I, I think that, that Castlereagh really wants to find a new a new kind of role for his brother, and and it, it coincides with the new era of British alliances, which come about after Napoleon's disastrous invasion of Russia. So we have a new alliance with the Russian Empire, which which comes about after sort of after the declaration of war, and we also then have a declaration of war by Prussia at the end of at the at the end of 1812 needing a, a needing a new kind new British representative to, to that court as well. Now I, th- I think the important thing is that, that it's not a standard diplomatic posting. It's to be minister to Prussia and ambassador to Russia, the, the, two, the both diplomats were in fact soldiers. and I think it makes sense because it's not it's not I think as I said, it's not a grand posting to the to the Berlin embassy it's basically attending the King of Prussia in, on, on the battlefield and across basically, you know, Central and Western Europe. And I think at one stage, Stuart even offers the Berlin embassy uh, as, you know, as a residence for someone to actually stay in if they were in Berlin, because clearly he's not using it at all. Um, so I, I think in, in many ways he is, he is the correct person to be there because he does have that sort of, you know, he's used to living in a military world. He's used to traveling with military camps. And I think there is also a sort of martial military air around the Prussian and Russian sovereigns at this time. And I think it's quite interesting that, that when he's first presented to the king of Prussia, Friedrich Wilhelm III, that he's complimented on his military exploits. And, and, I, and I think that's actually is, – is, I think he's the right person to be there at the time. But as you say, it's not – you know if it was a standard diplomatic post, I suspect he would have been a very bad choice.
0: You describe him. He, sometimes he's, he's chafing at the bit to go back into military command, and you even describe how occasionally he is uh, given military responsibilities with the Prussian cavalry, which I thought was really surprising.
1: Yes, um, at the Battle of Leipzig, he's yes, he's basically given command of a, of a regiment of the Brandenburg Hussars by by uh, by General Blücher. It's 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 an ins- it's it's an incredible idea that that to think that the the French french batteries at leipzig would have had no idea that basically the, the prussian cavalry is being led by the british minister it's, <laughs> it's, you know it's absolutely it's absolutely mad really and there are other times when when Stuart you know charges at various things he gets um uh, a splinter wound at, at an earlier battle i think in august 1813 his fellow ambassador lord kathka who's ambassador to russia basically takes charges of the Tsar's batteries of, of artillery on another occasion as well so it's it really is this kind of military martial atmosphere you know amongst the 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 amongst the whole sort of headquarters and I think the problem is that that tends to cloud people's opinions of Stuart as Minister to Prussia that he basically he's out of his depth he's a he's a stupid soldier always happy to go and fight people now yes, he's certainly happy to always go and fight people, but quite often he's he's the right person to be there because he he quickly gets the measure of all sorts of underhand diplomacy going on, especially, you know, as, as all sorts of um, to conditions, all sorts of sort of schemes to try and save Napoleon's throne. Especially, for example, Metternich, who's who seems to be quite keen to keep keep the Bonapartes in power. I'm sure, completely disconnected to the fact there's a Habsburg empress as well in Paris. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sure that's not connected whatsoever. <laughs> uh, um, it's so it's it's you know he's quite often very blunt yes but there's there's an incident where the earl of aberdeen who's appointed ambassador to austria is, is is negotiating potentially britain's maritime rights you know no no british government ever negotiate that because basically again that's that's the whole basis of british trade and imperial power is its mastery of the seas so basically you know aberdeen who i think you know is is, is only in his 20s he's he's you know, he's a, he's an earl he's very well connected i think sometimes gets convinced of his own his own cleverness and superiority um you know sort of says oh i've i've done you know I've, I've arranged this diplomacy and then Stuart comes along basically sees what's happening and said this is all rubbish we're not having this nonsense and then paul aberdeen has to go to metternich and the czar basically say oh dear sorry we, we, gotta, we gotta forget all this so being the being the blunt soldier quite often is is is, is absolutely spot on in 1813 to 14 when a when a civilian diplomat, not used to the military rigors of campaign, to, to death as well, because Aberdeen famously comes across a you know comes across a, a battlefield and is just horrified by the sight of of corpses, you know as as you would expect someone who's someone who's lived his life as a civilian scholar and a friend of Pitt the Younger suddenly sees a battlefield, it's you know we, we can't comprehend really that 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 a difference in 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 the world. So I I think I think Stuart literally was. You know, spot on for this post as, as Minister to Prussia, and I think when he you know when he's able to, for example, keep Sweden on side, where Sweden's looking a bit wobbly at times because of obviously Bernadotte's preoccupations with other things. He's not again he's not afraid to to, to tell Bernadotte, who's Crown Prince of Sweden, to his face what he thinks of his actions. That takes a, a you know a lot of courage to do that, and I think you know being the, the rash, brave soldier. Probably helped by having you know having Castlereagh's full support because Castlereagh's been foreign secretary since 1812. Does you know is 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 a help? And I and I think he knows you know that he can probably get away with things that other diplomats might not be able to get away with.
0: So is his promotion to uh the Vienna embassy a reflection of his success? Is it because his uh it was he just simply the the available person for the job? Uh, or was it because his uh, brother wanted to have that someone there that he knew he could trust more than practically any other person at his disposal?
1: Yeah, I I think actually it's a combination of all of those things. Um, Cause interesting. You say, Castlereagh becomes foreign secretary in 1812. He sends his brother out to Prussia in 1813. So I suspect obviously Castlereagh could use that patronage at his disposal. when, when he, when sort of the the first, um, application of napoleon is, is secured. Obviously there's a riot of celebrations across Europe and in London. And Stuart is, is very much seen, you know, as having done a really good job. So he's, you know, he's, he's raised to the house of Lords, you know, becomes Lord Stuart in 1814. That, that's quite a massive promotion. That's, you know, that that's, that's, that's a, that's a huge honor, um, for, you know, for, for a younger son. He's done really well to get that. And only only still in his thirties. Um, but I think the problem is that that he's you know, we, you know I don't know what would have happened to him in 1814 because even his father writes to Castle Ray to say have you heard from Charles do you know what he's actually going to do with himself because technically you know he don't know he he's technically unemployed so he's back in London but he's not actually doing anything so I think I think when Lord Aberdeen decides that he's not returned to diplomacy he decides you know basically a year is quite enough for him that that <laughs> the that the that is left with kind of, well, who, who do we send? Because it's going to be a really important post. It's going to be key to the Congress of Vienna delegation. And, and I think you're right. I think he, I think he sees Stuart as having done a good job in Prussia that, you know, he, be the, he's the sort of person he can trust implicitly in Vienna because it's going to be a key, you know, a key diplomatic, um, you know, decision because basically anything that happens in Vienna is going to decide the future maps, the future states, the future, you know, the future status of, of Europe. So I, I think yeah, I think he's available. The post comes up unexpectedly and Stuart basically, yeah, is is completely trustworthy. And I think, you know, there's always that relationship that, that Castle Re and Stuart swapped some very frank letters about European diplomacy in a way again I don't think and many other diplomats could do so because you know you've got you know a, a, a key a key warm relationship with, with Britain's leading statesman that no other diplomat really enjoys.
0: So, uh, Stuart is appointed to Vienna, and he's appointed at you know quite possibly the most uh, critical point in, in 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 over a century and a half, and quite possibly ever since, in terms of this embassy during the Congress of Vienna. What was Stuart's role in the Congress of Vienna, and and, and what were his experiences with it like?
1: Well, again, we we get a pop, popular stereotype of Stewart uh, Stewart in, in Vienna because he's he's very much one of the more colourful characters in a very colourful Congress. So, as 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 you you'll you'll recall from from the book, he ends up basically starting a fist fight in the street with a Viennese coachman. <laughs> he he gets up to all sorts of you know outrageous stuff at the opera. He you know he puts on lots of expensive expensive entertainments. He muses everyone. And that's kind of that's kind of the Stuart that that makes it into the history books because obviously, if you're writing a general history of the Congress, you want to bring out the colourful aspects. So obviously, you can't get away from that. And I think that, for me as a historian, that's actually quite a difficult thing to deal with because it's it's really Stuart oft, often acts crassly. He acts, you know, he he acts, you know, in a sort of sexist way. He's 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 often drunk, and it, it's it's hard really to. to to sort of square that with 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 the serious diplomat, so that was quite a challenging part of the book for me to try and say, actually, there is more to Stuart at the Congress of Vienna than basically the loud rude, sexist diplomat. And and you find that Castlereagh is using him for all sorts of uh, of sort of little missions. For example, when there are the troubles over over a new Romanov Kingdom of Poland, obviously everyone's worried that war might break out because. A lot, of, a lot of the Western powers don't want to see Russia in Poland see her borders expanded further further to the west. So Stuart is sent on a sort of mission to the to to the Emperor Alexander to talk about sort of Russian Russian ambitions. He's also sent to basically talk with with Prince Talleyrand, who heads the the French mission, to talk about sort of you know um, warm warmer rel- alliances between sort of uh, Britain and France. And he's also seen as another middleman between Castlereagh and Metternich as well. So he's very much kind of used by his brothers as a sort of trusted eyes and ears throughout the entire Congress, and he can he can also do things that perhaps Castlereagh can't do. So. It's interesting when when the Austrian spy networks who who have a great time with Stuart. There, I mean, they love they love following him <laughs> and, and and detailing all his sort of uh, sexual encounters, how much champagne he drinks, how many people he's punched in the street that day. I mean, they have they have a great time because I think I think I think the, the files on his brother basically say something like Lord and Lady Carcery were were seen today looking at some shops. End, end of report so, 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 so the Austrian spy who gets to follow Stuart has to have great time I bet the Austrian spy following Castlereagh is quite bored and bored most of the time poor poor chap. um but you, you you know you see the Austrians the Austrians soon realize that Stuart for example, is a regular visitor to the French to the French diplomatic mission. And obviously Britain and France are allies now since the restoration of Louis the eighteenth. <laughs> But it's it, it's it's still going to be some you know, undoubtedly residual weariness, especially for example on the path of France towards Britain. So Talleyrand still has quite a suspicious, suspicious sort of nature about British diplomatic intentions towards France, and and it's interesting that, that Stuart is is regularly seen at the French embassy, and I think that it's almost certain that he must have been, tr- you know, trying to ease those relations and try and basically ease ease any tension between Castlereagh and, and Talleyrand because obviously. You know, having having a you know having an alliance with France turns out to be quite important as as the sort of European deti- t- t- uh, situation deteriorates. And there's obviously threats and worries in 1815 about war with Russia and then Prussia over, over not, only the, not only the new Poland Polish Kingdom, but then the extinction of the Kingdom of Saxony, which had made the mistake of of staying Napoleonic, and then poor poor Saxony ends up being sort of reduced by a third as as for its pain. So. I can see Stuart is is able to do things that, that Castlereagh can't necessarily do, but of course, to anyone who Stuart actually meets, they would know he's Castlereagh's brother, and basically he would speak with the foreign secretary's absolute and full confidence and 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 you know and 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 orders. so I think he does play a really key role but as I say as a historian, it's really difficult to balance that with that crass nature that Stuart really shows to the fort of cognitive Vienna I mean in a way that he doesn't really before or after so it was a very difficult couple of chapters to write
0: so you have him playing this role in the congress of vienna of course he's there when napoleon stages his dramatic return and inaugurates what ends up becoming the hundred days does uh stewart play a uh role in 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 those events or is he on the sidelines
1: no he's he's very much actually uh, key to these whole events um you know, he's one of the first. He's one. He's one of the first sort of diplomats to actually find out about Napoleon's return because a uh, another British consul basically writes to another British diplomat, who then writes immediately to Stuart. So he, you know he he knows pretty early on, and he he's able to really keep his brother informed of what's going on amongst the allies, because obviously there's there's always I think a worry on Britain's side about you know would, would there would there be a separate peace with Napoleon? Would you know, would the Austrians, for example? Play a more subtle game. One one of the one of the things that Stuart teases out quite a lot is that Metternich's attitude towards um, a Napoleonic Restoration is is not as clear cut as it could be. So he he worries, for example, Stuart worries very much that that Metternich has got his eye on not Napoleon the first, but Napoleon the assuming power in France. Um, you know, under the regency of Marie Louise, obviously who's a Habsburg archduchess. And then Stuart says, of course, you know, it wouldn't be Marie Louise who would rule France, it would be Messinic who would rule France through her. So there's there's lots of British paranoia about about what might happen. So, yes, he's very much able to to send regular reports to his brother. The military man comes out again because obviously everyone's attention turns to, to 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 the military campaign. He's able to to advise his brother of on Prussian hostility towards the the Duke of Wellington. He's able to advise on sort of allied troop numbers and and what that and you know and basically the sort of condition of the troops in question and then he's basically sent off to to march with allied headquarters so basically the 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 sovereigns of Austria, Russia, and Prussia who are advancing from Paris from the east in what's the sort of obviously everyone everyone's attention focuses on on Wellington the Prussians, and the Waterloo uh the battle of waterloo but stuart is actually with with this massive force which travels west from vienna and and invades france as well for, you know from from the east although unfortunately i think Carceri gets a little bit annoyed that stuart doesn't doesn't take himself off very quickly because he's too busy Enjoy the champagne fuel charms of his of his then current <laughs> current mistress the duchess of sagan and then he basically says actually and the congress of vienna is due to be signed tomorrow so he says to his brother i may as well stay in vienna and sign it it makes sense really so you know he 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 sometimes bends the rules as much as he possibly can again because he's castorelli's brother he gets away with it but then you know then basically he he's able to report on on on, on the military campaign, you know, from 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 Vienna, travelling east into France. So that's that's I'm uh, sorry, travelling west into France, and you know, he plays a key role here. You know, for example, you know, he's able to report on sort of French peace feelers just after the Battle of Waterloo. You know, and he reports that back to back to his brother. He re, he also reports on various you know military sort of. Uh, Clash is still going on well after the Battle of Waterloo. In fact, you know, because there, there are pockets of French resistance still, you know, as late as July 1815. So, you know, he he is centre stage really as, as, as sort of the British representative in in that campaign, that Eastern campaign, which tends, as I say, tends to get overshadowed, perhaps in British historiography, and understandably so, sometimes by the by the Anglo-Prussian and other Allied campaigns, which ends at Waterloo.
0: So he uh, is there for the signing of the the, the peace and he is – remains in the embassy afterward, which means he's at the heart of the uh, post-Congress diplomacy. I was wondering if you could perhaps briefly uh, explain – what was going on in Europe diplomatically and did, did perhaps elaborate a bit upon Stewart's role in it. You know, was he advancing uh, a British interests? Was he participating in a lot of the consultations that were taking place? And, and, and what were some of the key issues that, that uh, arose during this period that he had to address? Yeah, it's, it's,
1: it's, it's a very interesting period the post napoleonic period really is one certainly from the from the british diplomatic point of view it's one of key you know key interest in what goes on in the affairs of mainland europe and and and, and castlereagh sends a, a memorandum at the beginning of 1816 basically telling Senior British diplomats and ministers that they should be, you know, really involved in the affairs of their respective courts and send information back to London. It's there's a real, there's a real feeling that that Britain is actively engaged in mainland European affairs and it's not just a sort of off, slightly off power, you know, across the channel. And it's it, there's all sorts of issues that need to be dealt. There's some sort of territorial arrangements that need to be sorted out. There's the future, obviously, of the of the Kingdom of France. Its reparations, immediately in 1815 um and and there's all sorts of things that break out as well there's there's trouble in in Spain, South American colonies there's issues you know with with various um things issues of slavery of course which which Britain is very uh interested in you know britain's obviously very very keen on pushing a sort of abolitionist agenda not not surprisingly um and and there are also perhaps from you know, sort of the late eighteen tens onwards a sort of increasing paranoia amongst European statesmen about about the threat of revolution as well. So it never really goes up. The danger of revolution never really goes away despite French, but despite the second restoration of Louis the 18th in 1815, um, you know, the, 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 the there's always a, a France tends to dominate European European thought that's entire time. So at the Congress of, of Asla Chappelle, where, where Stuart attends as a full delegate in 1818, the main, the main issue is the is the withdrawal of of Allied occupation troops from France, which are under the command of the Duke of Wellington, but but also underlying that there's there's lots of offhand diplomatic notes that that Stuart sends back to London on Austrian Austrian not paranoia but Austrian concerns about the future of, of the French monarchy that that Louis the is seen as you know as as a, a stable the second time around. But there's lots of lots of concerns really about um Louis the Eighteenth's brother, the Comte d'Artois, who's seen as a sort of bastion of ultra-royalism. And 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 sort of, you know, a, a sort of very a very sort of right-wing view of, of French monarchical traditions, where you know, whereas France obviously needs a piece of a of stability, a bit of moderation. So there's there's huge worries about, about the future of France, really, from from sort of the late 1810s onwards. And and then when you get revolutions breaking out in in Spain and Naples, there are there are concerns again about could could a new revolutionary spirit basically dominate you know Western Europe as it did you know from 1793 with France. So there's there's always that, that paranoia. But there's again that's that runs side by side with, with this with the European Congresses where states meet together quite regularly. And as I say, for 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 a British diplomatic story like myself, it's a, it's a really interesting period where Britain really is seen as a key European power in a way that perhaps Britain you know is 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 one of the withdraws from after Castlereagh's death. I don't want to get too far ahead there. <laughs> uh, um, so I think Stuart, you know, Stuart plays a key part. He's he's basically telling sending huge memorandums back to his brother in London about about Europe, you know about different european powers he he often meets various he meets other other european diplomats in vienna he you know often meets with european sovereigns for example when the when the emperor alexander comes to vienna he basically meets with him and has several interviews he meets all these people at the congresses as well for some of the congress of asa chapelle he actually invites the painter sir thomas lawrence out who then paints his some of his famous sets of the polonic military heroes and statesmen and even takes the opportunity to have a talk with the czar while he's actually sitting to lawrence for a portrait so you know he's really really involved in in all of this great power diplomacy throughout the entire 1810s and early 1820s and he really is absolutely center stage and he puts vienna i think as you said a moment ago he puts vienna absolutely center stage at britain's diplomatic efforts in a way that again perhaps the vienna
0: embassy hasn't hasn't enjoyed before or since he, what you describe are a lot of uh, his role in a lot of international events, but you also describe this uh, his role in this very domestic drama, you know, very literally domestic drama in terms of uh, the Prince Regent and his efforts to divorce his wife, uh, Charlotte. I was wondering if you could explain uh, you, what you know what was going on there and what was uh, Stuart trying to do and uh, how it turned out for him.
1: <laughs> yes um obviously the, the 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 then prince of Wales's marriage to to caroline of brunswick was unmitigated disaster from from the start basically um i think famously he called for drink on his first meeting and then she just commented he thought he was rather fatter than his portraits
0: <laughs>
1: uh, i'm sure portrait pages wouldn't dare flatter the prince of Wales. um so, it, it, you know, it just went bad, badly from there. The problem was they couldn't stand one another. I think the Prince of Wales married her to get more cash out of his dad, George III, a perennial issue between the two men. Um, and, and so basically when, when Europe was reopened again to British travellers, I think everyone just wanted Caroline to go away. So the British government said basically, here's some cash, please go away. And I think everyone hoped she wouldn't come back. Now, the problem for Stuart is that Caroline decided that she would settle in, in the Austrian territories in Italy. So anything that she did would immediately, you know, interest him as ambassador to the Austrian empire. So we get some very early on when, when, when Stuart is in Milan traveling with the Imperial court, that he starts to hear rumors about Caroline's lifestyle with an Italian called uh, Bartolomeo Pergamy, who he calls Bergamy in the English edition of always, always mispronouncing people's names. Um, the uh, it's the same thing at the refusal sort to of call Napoleon, Napoleon it's always Bonaparte or Bonaparte. The English, English are very English and British are very keen to sort of do this sort of thing. Um, so he hears he hears these first reports about Caroline's behavior with with this with this Italian who comes into um the princess's household, and Stuart's quite horrified by this. Not only you know to 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 a British aristocrat is she, is he is he foreign? He's also low born, so it's. It's, you know, it's absolutely appalling, you know, that she's he's actually involved with the princess of Wales. And it, it becomes clear pretty early on that the two of them are probably having, you know, an a, an, an affair, basically, um, which, you know, which is understandable. She's not particularly loved. She's living in a foreign country. And the prince regent is hardly is hardly discreet about his own affairs either. But the problem is that um, technically speaking, for a princess of Wales to commit adultery is, is high treason. Because obviously that that, you know that that disputes the future heir to the crown, so he's you know no one's actually thinking of putting on trial for high treason. But the regent senses an opportunity to get rid of her once and for all, and so Stuart ends up becoming a linchpin of 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 a very what becomes quite an elaborate spying operation against the Princess of Wales. So he starts. So you've got a very strange mixture of Stuart's careers as he's doing high European diplomacy. He's also collecting. What's, what's causing Foreign Office memos? Memo speak di- disgusting scandal, and unfortunately, you quite often find the Foreign Office memo is is there, but the disgusting scandal's been removed from the file. So that's quite annoying, actually, when you actually want really want to read about the disgusting scandal. And we hear, you know, he's he's in, he's collecting informants. Someone called the Painter is 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 is, is one informant. Um, he basically, you know, he's, he's collecting all sorts of information. Then he then sends off his secretary. Um, off to Milan to basically start collecting as well this, this information, and Stuart really trades on his relationship with Mesnick and the Austrians to push them into into provide as much help as they possibly can. But the Austrians, in return, don't want to be involved. They they really don't want to be involved in what's in what's a you know a, a family's a family scandal, even though it's a royal family scandal. And poor Stuart, his his peace of mind is quite interrupted when Caroline actually turns up at the Vienna embassy itself in 1817. And so, basically, he he's decides to go on a holiday and take the entire staff with him. So, poor there's there's a cartoon of Caroline turning up in Vienna, basically, there's no one there to greet her. There's there's a minor a minor diplomat is left in charge, but of course, you know it's it's an insult to basically not greet the Princess of Wales on her arrival in the foreign capital, and taking their cue, the Imperial Court then also say, actually, we're a bit busy too. sorry, we can't really <laughs> receive you. Apologies. Enjoy your stay in Vienna, though. Um, and, and, and as the, you know, the whole process gets more elaborate when Princess Charlotte of Wales dies in, in childbirth. So obviously, he's, she's the only child of the regent and the princess of Wales. And once she dies, I think the gloves are really, truly off. And the regent basically is desperate to be rid of, of, of Caroline. And then Stuart, you know, has to then you know, move up a gear into really organising, again, a, 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 a quasi-legal investigation into Caroline's affairs. And then when she becomes, when George becomes uh, George Fourth in 1820, you know, this this gets even worse because because George does not want Caroline as his queen in any way, shape or form. So, you know, again, Stuart is pushed, you know, is, is pushed very hard by London to really sort this divorce out and get the evidence available. He's being pushed by the Austrians who don't want to be involved too much into this, but they are actually given quite a lot of help. And, he, and he's also having to liaise with his own agents in Milan as well. So, You've got the Stuart, the high, the high European political diplomat. Again, Stuart basically, you know, to put a better word, the the rag muck, the, the sort of, you know, mucking up, all you know, getting all this muck to, to do the Princess of Wales, get secure this divorce. So it's a really bizarre career, really, you know, in the eighteen tens and twenties.
0: Yeah it's it's interesting to think about because I mean he's not you know doing it you know himself but this it does create this image of sort of you know Charles Stewart a uh, high diplomat by day C <laughs> private investigator by night. <laughs>
1: yes, yes Stewart PI, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And and you know it's it's you know it it's it's a role again which which hasn't really been highlighted in in many of the histories of the period and I, I think he escapes a lot of the attention at the Queen's trial Um, Certainly, the the Queen's solicitor, Queen's Attorney General Henry Broom, certainly knows what's been going on. Um, But it seems anyone outside the House of Lords doesn't really pick up on this. And I think because he's in Vienna, he tends to escape a lot of the criticism which is directed, especially at his brother, who comes in for some really virulent, you know, racist anti-Irish abuse at, at this time. And I think Stuart escapes. I think he's lucky to be kept in Vienna. And I do wonder sometimes if the government made sure he stayed, he was kept well away from proceedings.
0: Uh, let's, uh, f- uh, shift our focus to, uh, his brother. At this point, Castlereagh he's become Lord Londonderry, Londonderry, and he's been, uh, foreign secretary now for, uh, he's, he's nearing his, his first decade, uh, the completion of his first decade as foreign secretary. And then you have this dramatic suicide. I was wondering if you could perhaps explain, uh, the, the impact of, 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 uh, Castlereagh's uh, suicide on uh, his brother, and, and how it changes uh, his brother's uh, career from that point onward.
1: Yeah, it's 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 so sudden, you know, because as, as you say, der- uh, Marquis of Londonderry, or, or you know, Castlereagh, been in he had been in office for a decade. He's at the height of his powers. You know, there are rumors that the Prime Minister Lord Liverpool is going to retire, although he always he always puts that off. And everyone sees Carcery as as the natural turn, you know, the natural successor, really, to to Lord Liverpool, should that ever happen. Uh, And there there have been so many kind of um, theories and ideas about why Carcery took his own life in August 1822. And, you know, I I don't want to play the role of medical historian. My my partner's a medical historian, so I wouldn't dare. I wouldn't dare do that. (laughs) Um, But. You know, it, it seems that from various times in the book that, that Stuart certainly suffers from quite severe depression, which he causes blue devils at various times. And, and you know, you do wonder whether Stuart suffered from the from the same kind of symptoms. Again, you know, without without the direct evidence, it's really you know, it's difficult to really say one way or the other. But it's, it's quite reasonable that that may have suffered from the same kind of symptoms. But again, I'm very loath to play medical historian two centuries on from that. But it's it's also I think I think Castlereagh is, is a prodigious worker and 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 works so much. So he's foreign secretary, and he's also leader of the house, uh, leader of the House of Commons. So when you have so many of the cabinet sitting in the House of Lords, you have a uh, Castlereagh, Lord Londonderry, you know, still in the House of Commons because obviously he's he's an Irish peer and not and doesn't have a, an automatic seat in the House of Lords. So basically, he sits in the House of Commons still. Um, and, and I think I think he just comes too much, and it's. When, when Stuart's at home in the summer of 1822, you, you actually can read through his letters that, that, that Carcery's health deteriorates so rapidly. And, you know, and, and it's just it becomes paranoid almost about people around him, paranoid about the Duke of Wellington. And you even have Countess Levin, who who worries, Countess even the, the wife of the Russian ambassador, worrying that actually his fears about Wellington are being fed through Stuart's own sort of feelings towards Wellington. But again, there's not the evidence there to really say, you know, why, why, well, that might've been the case. So when Carcery kills himself in August 1822, Stuart is back in Vienna, um, ready to attend a big European Congress at Verona. It, it basically, to me, his brother's death basically removes any kind of restraints on Stuart's character. Before that, you know, Stuart had always been enthralled to his elder brother, very much saw his elder brother, you know, as, as a great man, which, which you know, which he was, uh, you know, a towering statesman of his time. And I think Stuart was always keen to do his part to help Castlereagh as much as possible. But once Castlereagh dies, it it's Stuart basically really doesn't lose any kind of self-restraint. And when a family enemy, George Canning, who, who Castlereagh had fought a duel with back in 1809 was appointed as foreign secretary. Stuart just, just won't have it. He basically resigns in anger and fury, you know, and he basically throws away his entire embassy on, on you know on on the whole thing of, of of Mr. Canning being appointed foreign secretary, and he then spends you know he then comes back to London, basically alienating virtually everyone in society and politi- and the political world, and I think destroys his own political career for for basically what's fury at, at George canning and what he sees as the polit- as the political world's ingratitude towards Castlereagh and his in- and his you know, and what he's done for Lord Liverpool's government over the last decade.
0: What I find interesting about this final phase of his life is he is describe it. He basically he he destroys his career and yet he spends the next you know nearly 3 decades uh, uh trying to get back into politics. Did was he not aware of what he had done or did he think that with the passage of time and because of his uh stature that he could uh, eventually reclaim a position in politics?
1: Yeah, I think sometimes he. I think, I think, yeah, I think a mixture of all of those. I, I think in the eighteen, yeah, in the eighteen twenties, he he spent his time alienating as many people as possible. You know, the the king, the prime minister, the Duke of Wellington, etc. And and then you know he, I think he's he he wants to become a, a someone who's who's politically very important. So he's third. He's now third Marquess of Londonderry. He's got a. He's he's married. Uh, he's married for the second time. He Marries um francis Anne bain tempest in 1819 so he's got her estates that he's a life tenant on in the northeast of england so he's he's kind of he he, he you know he's suddenly a very great statesman he's got a lot of money coming in because francis Anne has, has a sort of as an heiress of eighty thousand pounds a year these huge coal mining estates in durham so he you know he he's he is a great figure he becomes a great tory political host but i he just doesn't seem to realize that that he almost regards the return to powers as his due. You know, I'm I'm Lord Londonderry. You know, I'm the brother of Carcery. And he goes on about being the brother of Carcery quite a lot, which tends to irritate quite a lot of people in the 1830s. <laughs> you know, going on about, you know, you, do you know who my brother was? And they say, yes, we know exactly who your brother was. Uh, and, and then when you think things couldn't get even, you know, couldn't get worse, you get the early 1830s and the Reform Act, where he then becomes the most, you know, un- unreformed Tory. You know, he, he won't see reform at all. So even though you've got moderate Whig statesmen saying, you know, we think, you know, we think you'd be a great asset to the cause. He basically goes absolutely sort of crazy saying, no, I'm I'm not. You know, I won't have reform of any kind whatsoever. So it, 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 this is paradox there. He's, he seems he seems sensible. And I he seems sensible in terms of what's happening in European affairs. For example, he, he warns about the dangers of ultra royalism in France. But seems completely blind about the dangers of ultra-Toryism in Britain, that you know it could lead to revolution. So, you know, he's completely out on him. He's he's seen as so as so extreme, you know, that he's up there with with um, with the king's brother, Duke of Cumberland, who's seen as another, another sort of ultra-Tory of his time. And then when you get revolutions, you know, which which see um, the Russians are temporarily thrown out of Poland in 1830-31. In, in he sides with the Russians because he's unusually quite a Russia as well. which which quite unusual for the sort of British aristocracy. So most, most sympathies in, in, in for example, in Paris and London would be with Poland. His sympathies were with, with the Emperor Nicholas the first. So again, he's seen as, as a, as a, as an unreformed Tory at home, a, a friend of tyrants abroad. And, and as time goes on, he, he, he just doesn't seem to be able to change his ways. And he doesn't, see the damage he's done to his career until about 1839 when he actually writes to a former political opponent and actually admits actually my mind hasn't been very flexible and, I, and i've probably gone too gone on too much about my brother's memory and, and and not change in the way that he would have been able to do because you know he had the better political mind than, than i have but it's not as if he changes then he, he then continues still to alienate people and the, as you say he he's after various jobs he wants to be ambassador to France, he wants to be ambassador, uh, wants to be Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, and he's basically told time and again, no, no, you know, no, you can't have them. And when Victoria comes to the throne in 1837, it it's 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 just carries on being just as bad, because she she comes to regard L- Lord Londonderry as a very dangerous, dangerous individual who should not be employed in any kind of position whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> I think she oh. says it would be injurious in the public service to, to employ the Marquis of Londonderry.
0: And yet there he is as late as the early 1850s, still, you know, seeking uh, positions. At this point, it's it's more about uh, status and honor than it is about necessarily political power. But it's just fascinating to think how he, you know, even at that point, we're we're talking, you know, it's been two decades since the Napoleonic War. It's been 15 years since he left, he he last served in a a post. And, And that, that these revelations are coming in. And yet 15 years after that, he's still there, you know, sort of, you know, <laughs> pounding on the door. And you're basically saying, you know, I, you know, I I, I want my due. Yeah.
1: And he's also very, you know, he's very much keen for his, you know, for his eldest son from his first marriage to get his due as well. You know, so he's always, he's always pestering people for, for positions for his, for his eldest son. Back in 1822 to three, he pesters people for a peerage for an earldom, um, for on behalf of of the eldest son of his second marriage so he's very keen to sort of see himself as a great statesman with a dynasty in ireland a dynasty in britain and he, yeah and he wants the honors and the perks that go with that but he's quite happy to turn down for example return to the austrian embassy in the 1840s as, as you know he sees that as a personal insult it's like no i'm not going back there i want to be you know, i want to be ambassador to france but he's not He's not going to be employed as ambassador to France because he's not seen as as the right person for the job, but you know by by the, by the people the people who gave who give those positions away at that time. But you're right; in the 1850s, he has a furious row, you know, with with his brother-in-law, Lord Harding, because he wants to be, you know, he wants a, a position of honor, like for example, being Master General of the Ordnance. But he's simply not going to get that because you know no no one is going to employ him. It's 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 been as you say three three decades on from when he you know from when he was last actively involved in, in high European affairs and during that time he's not really been involved in anything at all. Hmm. Well,
0: We've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: Um well, I'm kind of between projects at the moment, so I'm I'm kind of toying with the idea of writing on George the Fourth, and really trying to basically tease out more on on his character. Obviously, we have the anniversary of his of his accession to the throne next year, and there's been a lot of renewed interest in 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 George the Fourth. So I'm kind of thinking. Along the lines of a, of a sort of popular biography of George the Fourth, but but watch this space. It's still I'm still thinking about that, but I, I think it would be that would make a really
0: good next project. It would t- be very interesting one, very much, and it, it, it builds nicely off of what you've written about here with uh, Charles Stewart.
1: Yes, thank, yes, I, I think so. I think I think George, I think George IV gets very underrated as well. I, th- I think you know, in, and there are key times when he's an important influence. For example, when he becomes regent in 1811 he he doesn't you know when he gets full power in 1812 he doesn't for example throw over the british war effort and throw out the minister so he you know he he's he, he i think he gets a very bad kind of kind of sort of reputation as a sort of a man who does nothing but for most of his life george iii won't let him do anything so i'm really keen to try and tease out more about the king's character well
0: reader Payne, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us i hope you have a wonderful day
1: No, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much, Mark.